Welcome data enthusiasts. We are Zuma, the recruitment consultancy focused 100% on data tech professionals in the Berlin region. And this is our podcast, Data for Good, connecting you with all things data. Today, we're joined by Patrick McGrath. Uh, Patrick is co-founder and CEO of Moonlit Games. Moonlit Games is a mobile gaming studio that leverages blockchain tech to give players the power to become creators. Patrick, welcome. It's good to see you. Good to see you too as well, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. Um, this will be, I'm really pleased to say, this will be the first podcast conversation where we're going to explore gaming from an analytics perspective or gaming period. So really exciting for us. And with that, hopefully it will kind of show analytics professionals the the great power and potential for an exciting career in gaming. Whew. Definitely. Um, first, honored to be the first uh, here talking about gaming. And uh, yeah, way back once upon a time when I first got into gaming, it was actually through analytics. So certainly a little little special place in my heart. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Well, some of the questions I want to go through is would be alluding to analytics professionals and how to get into this industry and what they might enjoy. So great that they've got someone with the actual um, experience and, and life path to go with it. Cool. So g give us a, a quick overview. How does data analytics work in the gaming world and particularly in the blockchain world? Whew, okay, well, that's that's two very different questions. Uh, blockchain is fairly new. Uh, I think the openness, right? Like the, the data is all there on chain. So as mm -hmm. long as you're able to pull that information, start to derive outcomes, uh, I, I think it's fairly straightforward. I think there's more complexity that, could certainly be added to a lot of the tools and maybe methods that are being used now. Uh, when I look at what's happening on blockchain versus traditional games, it's it's like one percent of what I'm used to. So I'm my background, you know, uh, free to play mobile, very successful large companies. I think most people have heard of Electronic Arts and Zynga and NCSoft, and uh, so you know, taking data very seriously, um, almost, uh, you know, the, the old moniker was data-driven. Uh, the way in which it is leveraged, again, in free-to-play mobile, like it's, it is the core of how decisions are made. It doesn't make decisions for you, but mm -hmm. to have anything other than data points, it's just conjecture. Right, so you just uh, you really want to understand what what the data points inside of your you know whatever your decision you're trying to make, and one of the factors there is really deeply understanding user behavior, where you know e-commerce you might try and learn a little bit about you know who's buying what. Uh, what other products 
might match this other product. But in gaming, it's just such an experiential uh, platform and product that you're trying to understand who these individuals are from a behavioral basis. And you start to pull that back uh, in quicker and quicker intervals. You know, we don't want to wait one week. We don't want to wait three days. We, you know, in the first session, can we figure out what kind of individual this is? Um, and if so, can we then start running tests on how to optimize their experience? So, boy, I, I could talk about this the entire podcast. So I'll just stop there. Well, 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 we we can we can start to explore that for sure. It's clearly a, um, it it's clearly a point that shifts the needle in gaming user behavior analytics. With that, in in terms of using this information more quickly to help you guys make decisions and iterate, what would be the key high level key data points that you might use, and and how are they useful? Yeah, that's a, it's a, a great question because there's a couple of different models that people use. Uh, I think ARM is a big one. So in order, acquisition, retention, monetization. Most people think oh, monetization, like the key focus, actually, when you look at gaming as a funnel, again, and I'm talking about free-to-play mobile gaming, uh, the reason why I keep referencing this is um, people might hear numbers that sound unrealistic. Like uh, at one point in time, Candy Crush had a hundred million users per day playing their game, right? So like you can't even conceptually like think what like a hundred million every day. Um, so this is just the kind of scale that you see on free-to-play mobile. Uh, and when you're thinking about this from a funnel, acquisition is the you know pretty primary how big of a user base uh, is out there and how do we get them in to this funnel? And then we have a couple steps of that funnel as far as acquisition in getting them into, you know, if your game has a tutorial, um, what is the first fail state? What is, you know, then, then you start going into specific events that are great indicators of if this player is going to retain. And you really want players to retain because obviously like it means you have a fun game, a good product and that there's longevity there. And then monetization, uh, which you know I wouldn't say is like the third most important, it's all very important. Uh, you start to break those KPIs down like something like LTV, uh, lifetime value of a user, uh, which also takes into account retention because lifetime, right? You want them around for quite some time, longer the life, uh, likely more value that, uh, you know, you can see out of a user, whether it's monetizing in-app purchases or videos, rewarded videos, um, or even just from a social standpoint, right? You have many users that might never spend in your game that bring actually a lot of importance if you have a community, you know, outside of the game, if you have mm -hmm. clans or tournaments or any of these things, they might be one of your uh, like evangelists. So 
there's a lot of different ways in which you can look at each one of these and start to really understand how a successful product or maybe even optimize a successful product even more um, in, any, in, in any portion of its life cycle. Hmm. Here's something. So if analytics uh, is used to understand your users or your gamers' behavior, how do you then use that to, um, looking back at the quick intro, how do you use that to give players the power to become creators? Can you give me any examples of how you have done used analytics to give users, to give gamers the power to become creators? Yeah, I, awesome question. Nice, I like, I see what you did there. I like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, there was, uh, I can give you an example of a, a extremely successful game, um, although most would view it as a very niche game. It was called June's Journey. For all the 60 year old ladies out there, they probably love it. Um, I say that because the demographics was uh, average age was 60 and 75% uh, female. And this, again, is a game that 2 million, 2.5 million players per day. Uh, so if you, if you didn't think your mom or grandma was a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> They're hiding something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so this game was a hidden object game. So there's a scene, it mm -hmm. looks a bit messy and you know, you find the, the shoe or the, the crow or the key or you know, all these different, you know, kind of like find it inside the scene. So that was the gameplay. But then there was for the full loop, there was a island building portion to the game where you play these games to uh, move forward and progress in the story, earn coins. You go spend those coins on the island to decorate. So obviously very creative because we had a massive amount of decoration sets. And so players could mix and match. And this was something very early when we were looking at how we could really retain and also monetize. So how do we optimize the LTV? And we knew that the island loop and the decorative, more creative aspect of the game was something that really could hook players. And we started to create feature sets around this. So really not just, hey, let's decorate. How you know, how do you decorate? When is there like a competition in decoration? Is there some type of collectability around this? So now we're creating collections. And so really to accentuate this creativity, like we just offered more ways in which uh, players could be. And it was all just from being able to look at in-game data. We ran tons of in-game surveys and matched survey reports to the actual player's behavior. Um, so it was, it was really, uh, you know, data intensive to go through this, uh, but I think it was very rewarding in the long run because it helped us 
grow this product uh, into, you know, kind of the numbers that I was giving before. Mm, that's fascinating. One million plus users. June's journey. I'll look that up post podcast. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't think you you would have known off the top of your head. I would have been uh, a little surprised. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah don't quite fall into the the demographic yet, but uh, yeah, maybe one day. Um, so with that, and, and speaking more generally now what are the activities that data scientists typically perform in a gaming shop or a gaming platform to help shift the needle? What would a data scientist or analyst be doing working for a gaming company? I think it would really depend from company to company and product to product. So I will just speak kind of in, in generalities because you, especially the difference between data scientist and analyst sometimes blurs. I've seen mm -hmm. it some companies where really when I've seen it operate the, the best uh, is when analysts are truly a function within the, the game team themselves. They're there every day talking to designers, working with the product managers, understanding you know the ins and outs of the game and are able to pull information that helps create new features, identify things that might be wrong with the game, right? Because you don't want to necessarily just rely on bug reports, uh, but analysts can actually go and look through data and find, you know, issues with the game, technical issues. So, um, so, so they're kind of like on the ground, boots on the ground, um, uh, working with the game team, uh, pulling out, kind of just working with the data all the time, where data scientists, they're extremely helpful, but they don't have to be in that day-to-day. -day. And actually, I think it's probably not helpful for them. Um, of course, it's best to understand what you're analyzing, but you know they need those cycles of, of you know, deep work, right? Because they're spending a couple weeks, you know, whether they're doing, uh, geez, I, I, I don't know, oh, j just to use the example of the surveys, like this was always something that would take two to three weeks uh, as data scientists were really digging in uh, to the data, matching it with the user behavior inside the game. And uh, I'm, re I'm really trying to remember like specific uh, methods that they use, but it's off the top of my head. I, I'm not going to throw anything out. Um, but I, that would be kind of the biggest difference between data scientists and analysts. I think the expectation and the speed of work, also mm -hmm. like how, how large it is. Um, mm -hmm. But I think from day to day, like uh, an analyst would be kind of reviewing their KPIs, uh, helping out the game team, maybe, you know, sniffing around some, some oddities uh, that they see. Uh, it, it's really varied, to be quite honest. Um, and, and then just even to flip that, because I'm, I'm just almost game team centric right now, then you can look at marketing, right? Now this opens up an entire other uh, kind of field for analytics 
where, you know, when you're looking at user acquisition, of course, you know, you're running tests on the performance of specific creatives, whether it's click-through rates, CPIs, ROAS, like you just have a whole field of information that you want to be churning through quite quickly and really lowering the time uh, of understanding how cohorts may perform because the faster that you can somewhat guess, right, a high level, high probability guess, um, the greater the edge you have in helping your product grow and perform. Mm. Interesting. I'm keen to know um, gaming businesses that don't have internal data teams, how would they be behind the eight ball um, to gaming companies that do have data teams? What would they be missing out on? In like every way, man. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, okay. So again, like if we just look at it from an acquisition standpoint, being able to churn through massive amounts of data, understanding, you know, even what channels or platforms are performing the best. I think this is some high level stuff that you could do, but it really limits on the amount of tests that you can run. Um, inside the game, you know, having the skills and ability to, you know, actually just, you know, something as basic as just like being pretty good at SQL already is like quite an edge for almost anyone uh, inside mm-hmm. of games. So I would expect, you know, an analyst to obviously be like top-notch SQL Mm. or Python or, you know, whatever uh, people are leveraging within the the game team or studio. And again, it gets back to kind of the user behavior, being able to dig deeper and understand your your end user um, and being able to predict how they will interact with your game when the best time to possibly, you know, nudge them for any type of sale that you might be running. Hey, Joseph might want this different sale than Patrick. How do we know that? Well, you got to test it and someone's got to run these tests. Someone's got to think these, uh, you know, these tests up and then, uh, you know, continue just to, uh, mine more and more information uh, through A-B testing and and these types of things. And this is generally owned by data analytics. Mm -hmm. Of course, you don't necessarily need a gigantic data team. Um, It just allows you to run more sophisticated models. It allows you to get information faster. And at the end of the day, when competition is really down to how efficiently you can spend your money to get yourself marketed in front of users. Like these data points are priceless. Mm-hmm. Here's something, um, it's probably really subjective, but in your view, although data scientists and data analysts are not the game developers, how important do you think it is for analysts and scientists 
to be gamers? I think, I think it's important to have interest in whatever you do. I don't necessarily think that you would have to be a gamer because this can mean quite a few different things. Of course it helps, right? Just as, you know, if you were an analyst for a swimwear company, probably nice to be into swimming. I don't know, like you kind of understand, you might have some affinity mm. for the, the products and you understand like certain aspects of the products better. Um, but I, I think gaming's a, a slightly different one because it, it's one that evokes a lot of passion and, sure. you know, and, you know, it can be quite cultish in the gaming world. So I wonder how strong. But that is a um, double edged sword. Because yeah. you, think, then you, you bring in your own biases and this is the worst thing you can have is a biased data analyst, right? Like you find yeah. the you find the information you're looking for and data analysts know this more than anyone. Like you could tweak some numbers and make it look really good or really bad. Uh, you know, you can set the story and the narrative in certain directions. So uh, for me, and this is purely, purely like subjective, like my my own experience uh the best analysts i've i've ever had um were ones that were tangentially into games you know they weren't like the hardcore gamers they played from time to time when games were really big played with some friends but they weren't the i get done with work and i go game uh and they were coming from a totally different space. So they weren't green. They knew how to do analytics, mostly e-commerce is kind of the other area where most analysts are. Uh, had some affinity to games, but it's not like hardcore gamers. Uh, and we're just interested to know like, oh, there's mobile free to play stuff. Oh, that sounds interesting. That's a different type of game. Uh, and they just came in clean sheet with the technical skills and absolutely crushed it. <laughs> this is, yeah, I, and they bring that objectivity as well, a, yeah, a yeah. different perspective as, as well as uh, a, a non-biased approach to it. Exactly, okay. exactly. Um, it, it might seem obvious uh, and it might seem, or, or it might be that the career path of a data analyst in a gaming company is the same as other areas like e-commerce but could you outline that for me what would be the, the typical career path for a data professional in the gaming industry yeah that's interesting because I, I i can assume what it would be in e-commerce i think in gaming it's a little different uh good and, okay and a number of us uh actually transition into product management quite uh, quickly. Like when, when you start to hit upper levels of analytics, there are only so many routes. Um, if you're really kind of digging the cross-functional, understand how games are made, bring that data-driven mentality of just trying to break down, oh, excuse me. Um, the users break down the product and the features themselves, put this all together. Uh, 
I think this is where analysts will go down that product route. It's just a bit more creative and a little more hands-on with the development of games. Of course, there is the more like team lead, uh, director of analytics type role, but for a lot of analysts, this is not their favorite. <laughs> it's like you start to kind of be more of a coach and you stop doing a lot of analytics, which is kind of the, the thing that uh, you know a lot of analysts love to do. Um, and also there's just you know not as many roles at a company, right? It's the one <laughs> usually. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, data scientists, uh, but you have to have, I think, uh, a, a deeper technical knowledge, um, mathematics, uh, of course, I think, most people are using Python nowadays. I don't know. I'm like, I won't talk for data scientists, but a couple of years ago, like everybody seemed to be using Python, but, uh, you yeah, know, just still even understand that way. Yeah. Okay. Whew, good. Like <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty You're damn good back it. in the day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I haven't been passed by, like, uh, you know, I'm not that old. Um, so, I, I, these are the three areas. I would say that the majority, you know, if you had 10 analysts, I'd say probably six are probably going to go down the product management route, maybe six mm -hmm. to seven, six to eight. It really just depends. Um, then you have the higher level uh, analytics route and then the data scientist route. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I've seen that one very rarely. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. And that, that'll be good for the uh, data community to, to realize before they make that step as well. Um, I, I want to quickly go to a, a topic that you alluded to at the beginning. And that was around blockchain, blockchain for gaming. So if we understand blockchain to be around the monetization of gaming and how it's transforming it, and it's just the beginning yeah. How do you believe it's uh, affecting gaming as an industry in terms of security and, and even mm -hmm. the, the ownership of um, in-game tokens and assets? Yes. So, boy, where, where do we start? That's a, a, it's a great question because it's just we're so early and it really feels like early gaming to me. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with why uh, we decided blockchain, what we're doing, and th oh. that'll probably give some of the, the better understanding of you know, what we're up to. So blockchain for us, of course, like the asset ownership is incredibly interesting and a bit motivating, especially as we see more and more uh, examples of asset ownership being an important piece as, you know, very recent news with CSGO just banned a couple of accounts and, you know, of these handful of accounts, it was over like $2 million worth of items in the account and it's just gone, right? Like you don't get that. <laughs> um, so, you know, like <laughs> It would be real nice to get banned and maybe not lose, uh, you know, a fortune uh, because whatever you were doing inside the game. Uh, so blockchain has helped to 
um, mitigate the risks from those activities happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. You, you, you wouldn't be able to just take away those assets. I mean, that would be an extremely centralized thing to do, which is what, mm -hmm. you know, Steam, CSGO can do. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that, that's, of course, like important at some very like fundamental level for us getting it back to games. We see it as a way in which we can take something a video game and create a new way in which people can experience it uh, at in mass. So I'll just give you an example of most games have experienced or employed linear progression. Very simple. I'm level 50. I have my level 49 sword. It's a thousand hit points or whatever, right? Like all the stats. And you know what you're going to get, very recognizable, understandable. This is cool. We can keep that. But with blockchain, you can have another experiential, uh, or sorry, more emergent layer on top of that that relies on the experiences that you have with your items, characters, and other assets inside the game. And one example that I constantly use, because people understand Excalibur the sword, right? When Excalibur came from the blacksmith, it was not Excalibur. It was a very nice sword, very sharp, nice materials, rare. But this sword just didn't go to a soldier. This sword went to King Arthur, already a very good start in the story. He took it into battle after battle, win after win. Uh, you know, Lady of the Lake, Sword in the Stone, all of these actions, all this history is what creates Excalibur. So mm. imagine King Arthur, you know, second battle gets overtaken, loses his kingdom. Well, you never hear about it, Excalibur, right? There's some new sword or battle axe that the conquering king used is now like the new legendary uh, uh, weapon. So these are the types of things that we can now create inside of a game that are more emergent and rely on you as the individual and how you use these things. And we can create different areas that you understand and are very transparent in the way that they interact with your character's weapons and a system. So for us, we call this system DNA, uh, like deeds and achievements, but you know, nice acronym. Uh, so everything that we look at as far as blockchain, it's, it's a technical layer. Nobody even needs to know they're on blockchain. What they'll experience, they'll say, what the heck is this? Like, why have I never had this in a game? Like, how are they doing that? Uh, and then this can be where, you know, there's a bit more education around like, custodial, non-custodial wallets and ownership and all of these things, but it's past that, hey, this is blockchain web three, because we're really not trying to present ourselves as, you know, this blockchain or web three game. We are a game and mm -hmm. you can just do really cool, interesting things that other games can't or won't do. Mm -hmm. It's not important for the user to see that, is it? Exactly. Well I, yeah, I've never heard once someone be like, oh, you use Unity Engine? No way. 
you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's not. It's not. It doesn't. It doesn't wield the same power as saying that I'm holding an Excalibur. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> okay, but what it does do, blockchain, is adds a level of complexity and sophistication that backend can then be built on for to enhance the user's experience. Exactly, and you don't need. Um, so uh, another great example is Eve Online right? Been going for 20 plus years. The amount of work that has gone into the back end of this game uh, is immense. And, you know, a small startup like Moonlit wouldn't be able to do that. Like, we would literally all have to be back end engineers. And mm. blockchain allows us to have some really interesting back end interactions without having an army of back end developers figuring out how to make it happen very interesting okay uh, patrick um being mindful of time i want to finish up by giving a bit overview a bit of an overview as to what the future might look like and although it is kind of crystal ball stuff i like it what can you tell us <laughs> what, what where do you see analytics for gaming going in the future you said we're at the beginning particularly with um, blockchain gaming where do you see things going oh well this this is always tough because i think if the past six months is any indication right so the if anyone's been under a rock uh the advent of ai the very buzzwordy um but really more like GPT, uh, you know, large language models, um, helping out in daily life. Uh, I'm seeing like wild statistics now, like 70% of Americans use it at work. It's like, damn, like I, I've never seen technology catch on this fast. Um, so I think that the applications, I know there's a couple uh, companies already really trying to work on, you know, how to integrate that into to games and products, uh, which is interesting. But I, I think analytics is just going to become more robust. There's just going to be so many data points um, that really, that, <laughs> yeah. You know, like uh, analysts and maybe like data scientists, like it's in the name, they're like very scientific and like buttoned up, but it's like, you know, there's a little art to the science, right? You know, like when you start to come up with your own KPIs and your own metrics, like there's a little art to this, you know, why would well, this metric in this metric, like create this? Oh, that's interesting. Like you have to be an alchemist a bit. Um, and I think that this type of, again, we get back to being a creative in, in everything, uh, this type of creative thought and problem solving will be rewarded massively because we're only going to have more and more data to churn through, and we're just going to have to find new ways to look at it. Sorry to cut you off, but... To <laughs> No, no, I, I, I like the direction you took it in. What I was going to add to that was how there is a expectation that 
data scientists have a great, you know, in, in the kind of common business world, they have a great understanding as to the product and the business and the industry that it serves. One of the beauties of gaming is that whole artistic, creative aspect. So data scientists should be able to, ergo, be able to bring that creative flair, that artistic understanding of the the domain which they serve in gaming. So yeah, it marries up very well. Absolutely. Cool. Nice uh, open-ended finish we have to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's uh, anytime you start, you, you open the the LLM, you know, box or, uh, you know, it, it can go a lot of different ways. <laughs> Just... yeah. But but you know, it was an it was actually an open question, and mm. you, you reached for AI and LLM, so. That suggests to me that you you see um, LLMs, large language models, as, as being a big part of the future of gaming. Would that be right to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I don't see a world, I think even a year from now where, I mean, in gaming, outside of gaming, it will be, it's, it's already crazy how we're using it inside of our development already um mm. and, and how much it's saving us like as far as time and effort um on certain tasks of course it's not like it does everything but uh i think very much like it will do for engineering for data analysts for those that are good you know solid technical skills but again when it gets to problem solving and creatively problem solving this is where i think it will superpower data scientists and analysts, because a lot of the other work, I don't want to like, you know, say, oh, it's like tedious, busy work, but you know, there's like some things where it's like, oh, damn, I got to like go figure this thing out. Well, LLMs are good at figuring out this tedious stuff, tedious stuff. So uh, really think of, you know, the really foundational, like needle moving, uh, uh, aspects of the model rather than the uh, actual, you know, creating, to, you know, fingers to keys, typing it out. Um, so I, I think it will certainly superpower a lot of great analysts and data scientists. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It seems like we may well have the next podcast for six months later, talking about <laughs> how the likes of ChatGPT or LLMs have influenced uh, the blockchain gaming world. Patrick, thanks very much. Joseph, thanks for having me. Yeah, great. It's been a, a really insightful time. So yeah, I look forward to seeing you next time. I look forward as well. Okay, ciao.